Hi, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started in just a minute, so feel free to grab a seat if you're still grabbing some lunch. But we're going to go ahead and introduce our three speakers so that we can get this show on the road. I'm Laura Odato with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about the role of the federal government with urban transit and transit issues in general. One of the, the motivating factors for today's briefing was our Cato scholar Randall O'Toole has a new paper just released today called The Great Streetcar Conspiracy. And there's copies outside, and if you didn't get one, just let me know and we can get you extras, in addition to all of the other Cato publications, which I'm happy to get to everybody. So I'll go ahead and introduce Randall first. He'll be speaking first today. He's a Cato Institute senior fellow. He works on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. He's authored numerous books and policy papers on these topics that have influenced decisions in cities across the country, and in his most recent book, Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It, he presents a range of recommendations for creating an effective transportation system. Following Randall will be Sam Stolley, who is the managing director of the DeVoe L. Moore Center at Florida State University, as well as a research fellow at Reason Foundation. He has more than 25 years of experience in applied urban policy and economic development, working as an academic, consultant, and policy analyst for leading think tanks. Prior to joining Florida State, he founded the Reason Foundation's Urban Policy Program in 1997. Lastly, but certainly not least, will be Alan Pisarski, who is a leading author, analyst, and consultant in the fields of transportation research, policy, and investment. He has testified before congressional committees on the national and state level on economic and demographic factors that define travel demand, infrastructure investment requirements, and public policy. Internationally, he's worked with the World Bank, the United Nations, the European Union, and many other organizations. And with that, I will turn things over to Randall. Thank you, Laura. Laura didn't say, I don't think, but I'm not from Washington, D.C. I live in Oregon, uh, and I grew up in Portland, which is now the envy of the nation for its wonderful little streetcar line. And cities all over the country want to build streetcar lines just like Portland's. And uh, if you don't live in Portland and you come and tour the city, you may get, hear a speech about how wonderful the streetcar line is, unless you actually talk to real Portland residents, and then you may hear speeches about how terrible the line is. To really understand the Portland streetcar, we have to go back in time a little bit. In 1986, Portland built its first light rail line. Uh, it opened between Portland and the suburb of Gresham, and they immediately zoned everything on the line for what they call transit-oriented development. This is apartments and mixed uses, shops, offices, and things like that, fairly high densities next to the, street, the light rail stations, so that, uh, people living in those uh, developments would want to ride the light rail. Ten years later, this is what they got. Not a single new development. And the city council held a hearing. And the uh, Portland city planner named Mike Saba uh, testified that they had not gotten a single new transit-oriented development along the light rail line, even though they had zoned all the, the line for that development. And a city commissioner named Charlie Hales said, here we are in this hot real estate market. Portland's price, housing prices are growing rapidly. Uh, and... Uh, Yet, when he looked at the map showing vacant lands where they could build new developments, uh, a lot of the vacant lands were right next to light rail stations, and nothing was happening. So they called in developers, and the developers basically said, people don't want to live in those kind of developments. They want to live in single-family homes, and you won't let us build those, and that's why the prices are going up so much. Uh, but that doesn't mean that people won't going to want to live in this stuff. So we need some subsidies if you want us to build them. 
So they offered 10-year property tax waivers to all residences along the light rail line. Uh, some of these waivers were for buildings that were worth a million dollars, or for, for condos that were worth a million dollars per dwelling unit, and they would pay like $150 a year in property taxes because they were paying taxes on the land but not on the development. Well, that wasn't enough to get as many developments as they wanted, so then they started using what was called tax increment financing. That's where they take taxes that would ordinarily go to schools and fire and police and instead use them to subsidize uh, development. This is a map of the downtown Portland area, and the different colored areas are different tax increment finance districts. Now, after they had decided to do all this, they built a streetcar line, and you can see the red line here is the streetcar line, and it goes through three of the tax increment finance districts. And this is the amount of money that they used in tax increment financing to subsidize development in each of the districts. The district on the, the right, which received $436 million of subsidies, of TIF subsidies, is, is what's popularly known as the Pearl District. Uh, if you've read about Portland or you've been to Portland, you've probably seen the Pearl District. It has lots of shops and restaurants and condos. The one on the left is called the Wa South Waterfront District, and it has some high-rise apartments. And the one in the middle is called the South Park Blocks District, and it it doesn't have as much new redevelopment, so they, that's only a $70 million subsidy. Well, City Commissioner Charles Hales said, it's a myth to think that the market will take care of development along transit, so therefore we have to subsidize it. But two years into his uh, office, a term of office, he was elected for a four-year term in, 19, in 2000, his third four-year term, two years into his term, he quit his job and went to work for an engineering firm that wanted to sell streetcars to other cities. And so then he changed his tune. He said, we built a streetcar line and we got billions of dollars in new development. He never mentioned the subsidies that he himself had proposed and voted for, the hundreds of millions of dollars of subsidies that included not just tax increment financing, but uh, waivers of development fees, waivers of permitting costs, waivers of property taxes for 10 years, that, which them, those added up to probably $50,000 for every residential unit in addition to the tax increment finance subsidies. So he would go to cities like Cincinnati that has a blighted district called Over the Rhine. Uh, it's just a totally burned out district. And he'd say, if you build a streetcar here, that's all you have to do and you'll get billions of dollars of redevelopment. And he sold them on the idea. Cincinnati is building a streetcar into Over the Rhine thinking they're going to get billions of dollars in development. HDR, the consulting firm he worked for, did an analysis for Cincinnati and a bunch of other cities, and they found that the benefit, they did a benefit-cost analysis, the benefits of building the streetcar were more than twice as great as the cost. But almost all of the benefits that they counted were the economic development benefits. And if you didn't count the economic development benefits, you can see every single one, the benefits are far less than the cost. So economic development makes or breaks the idea of streetcars. If streetcars really do generate billions of dollars of economic development, maybe they're worth building. But if they don't, they're not. Absolutely. There's no question. Well, how can we tell whether they're really worth building or not? Here's a report that was published by the city of Portland called Development-Oriented Transit. It lists all of the developments that they say were generated by the streetcar. 
Now here's a map of the streetcar line and the different districts, and the, the purple on the right is the Pearl District. And all of the developments that were supposed to take place in the Pearl District were, were within two blocks of the streetcar line. So this is an outline of the area that was redeveloped within two blocks of the streetcar line. Now before the redevelopment, this was a railroad yard. This is an aerial photo. We've got train stations. We've got uh, warehouses. We've got lots of train tracks. And they used $435 million in, in subsidies to clear out all that stuff, to take this brown field and turn it into a green field, and then add infrastructure, pave new streets, put in sidewalks, put in water and sewer lines, put in little parks for people to play in. And uh, then they let developers develop. So here's uh, a development. This is, this is a Whole Foods. Isn't that nice? It's, it's right next to the, light rail, the, the streetcar line. Here we have a nice little pedestrian-oriented community, right? Of course, right next to the Whole Foods is a nice big parking garage that was built at taxpayer expense. And then they say, look, we built the streetcar line and we got a Whole Foods. They didn't say, we built a parking garage and we got a Whole Foods. But that's really what happened. Okay, now, for comparison's sake, look at the area on the upper right, which is uh, the streetcar line goes through, but it received no subsidies. It's outside of an urban renewal district, so it has no tax increment finance subsidies and almost no subsidies of any other kind. Yet the area within two blocks of the streetcar line is almost identical in size to the area in the Pearl District within two blocks of the streetcar line. Okay, the streetcar line was built in 2001. This is what it looks like today. And I could show you more pictures, but basically it comes down to they've done almost no new development. Here is the, what the Development-Oriented Transit Report says. It says in the Pearl District, they got $1.3 billion worth of development. In Northwest Portland, outside the Pearl District, they got $17 million of development. And one of those developments has since gone bankrupt. Another one is actually completed two years before the streetcar line was built. I don't know how they got away with, with counting that as a streetcar stimulated development. So really, it's maybe $8 million worth of development instead of uh, 17. So if you build a streetcar line and spend $500 million subsidizing redevelopment, you'll get maybe a billion dollars worth of development. If you build a streetcar line and you don't spend it, you'll maybe get $17 million worth of development. Since the streetcar line costs $55 million, there's no way the benefit-cost ratio is greater than one. Uh, this should not have been a surprise. Back in 1995, the Federal Transit Administration asked two leading experts to review the literature on streetcars, well, on rail transit, and what kind of effect it had on cities. The researchers were Robert Cervero, who's a planner who's, who I think coined the term transit-oriented development. He's a strong proponent of it at the University of California at Berkeley. And Samuel Seskins, who works for Parsons Brinkerhoff, which has its finger in almost every rail transit project in the country. And they concluded, they were talking about things like Washington Metro and BART that carry hundreds of thousands of people a year or a day uh, compared to a streetcar that carries thousands of people a day. And they concluded that uh, these kinds of rail transit investments do not cause cities to grow faster. They might shuffle things around. It might increase the property values next to the train station, but it'll decrease property values somewhere else in compensation. Overall, there's a, it's a zero-sum game. 
Now, the Portland street, each Portland streetcar cost about $2 million. They were built in, in uh, the Czech Republic. Uh, but if they're going to be funded by the federal government, we have to buy them in America. So a Lake Oswego company got a $4 million grant to build a streetcar, a prototype streetcar. They basically bought the plans from the Czech company, built the streetcar. It didn't work. So then they had to spend $3 million making it work. So they spent $7 million to build a $2 million streetcar. They now have a thriving business building streetcars for cities that have received federal grants for streetcars, and they're selling them for $4 million each, uh, twice as much as what the, the Czech company was selling them for. And uh, they notified the city of Portland that the six streetcars that they ordered turned out to be only five streetcars for the same price. But they said, you're not getting less, you're getting more. I don't know how they did that, but I, I guess Portland elected officials are kind of innumerate, so maybe they think five is more than six. I don't know. Uh, they also like to call, this is another example of innumeracy, they also like to call streetcars high-capacity transit. Here's a, a streetcar floor plan. Although the streetcars are 66 feet long, they only have 31 seats. There's a lot of standing room, but uh, with only 31 seats, you look at a 40-foot bus, they have 40 seats. You look at a 40-foot double-decker bus, they have 80 seats. Uh, you've seen these double-decker buses with open tops running around uh, Washington, D.C. They cost about three-quarters of a million dollars as opposed to two million or four million dollars for the streetcar, depending on where you buy it. Uh, and the, the buses can also move a lot more frequently. Because of safety reasons, they can't run the streetcars closer together than about every three minutes. Uh, but you can run buses every minute or two uh, on the street. And in Portland, we have staggered bus stops, every four bus stops every two blocks. So we can run, in Portland, um, about three times as many people on the buses uh, than on streetcars. And if you had double-decker buses, it would be about six times as many people in the bus corridor than on the streetcars. The operating costs of buses are a lot lower. Not only are the capital costs lo lower, but the operating costs are about half as much. And they use less energy. The average streetcar line in this country uses more energy than the average automobile and the average bus. More energy than the average SUV, as a matter of fact, per passenger mile. <clears throat> uh, Streetcars and light rail are so expensive that Portland and many other cities that have built rail transit are severely cutting their bus service to uh, uh, deal with it. They're uh, having a lot of people protest in Portland, and yet uh, they don't care. It's more important to have trains than it is to actually have transit riders. Uh, in 1980, before we built any trains, 9.8% of Portland area commuters took transit to work. Today, it's all the way up to 7.2%, thanks to light rail and the streetcars. Downtown office workers, there's been a change in how uh, downtown workers get to work in the last 10 years. Uh, the change has been a huge increase in cycling, bicycling. That has, as you can see, that has resulted in a small decrease in auto driving and a big decrease in transit. So far from increasing transit ridership, the streetcar, if anything, has maybe had an impact on increasing bicycling. I don't know why, but, you would, but uh, it means it's a lot less transit ridership. Although the Portland area has grown by 14% in the last 10 years, uh, downtown jobs has grown by 0.3%. That kind of puts the lie to the idea that the streetcar is really promoting economic development if you've only had a 0.3% increase in jobs. There's a, a popular blogger in, in Portland called, uh, named 
uh, Jack Bogdansky, but his blog is bojack.org. Uh, and he thinks the, the streetcars are just goofy and a big waste of money. I think that reflects the opinion of a lot of Portlanders, uh, especially those who don't live in the Pearl District. Uh, you've got your own goofy streetcar. This is a Columbia Pike uh, route, I understand. Uh, they built the tracks, they've got the cars, but they're not allowed to put in overhead wires, so the tracks are un unused and the cars sit rusting away somewhere. Uh, why, why do cities do this? Why, why do they get sucked into these ideas from fast-talking consultants like HDR? Well, the simple answer is the federal government has a big pot of money. They call new starts and small starts, two different pots of money. And the cities that grab the most money get the most. And in order to grab the money, you have to have a really expensive transit project. If you've got a cheap one, you don't get any money. So uh, the problem is that the Bush administration had written rules saying that trans transit actually has to, rail transit has to, actually has to be cost effective. And in particular, streetcars would be judged against buses. And so they didn't give out any money. Well, the, the Obama administration has a solution to that. They're going to rewrite the rules and make it so that you don't have to be cost effective. In fact, the more money you waste, the better it is. Uh, so uh, the new rules should be out pretty soon. And then we've got cities all over the country, Milwaukee, uh, uh, Albuquerque, uh, a whole lot of cities are standing in line with their applications to submit as soon as the rules are changed. And I'm hoping that we can pr prevent that. Uh, hope you take a look at my study, and if you've got any questions, I'll be glad to answer them after uh, the other two speakers. Click over to Sports here. Great. All right. Thank you, Randall, and thank you to the Cato Institute for giving me this opportunity to talk about transit and the federal role um, for today, at least for the next few minutes, and answer a few questions after uh, all the panelists go. Um, I'm going to start from a slightly different, well, actually, probably is pretty significantly different position where Randall did. I think Randall did a great job of questioning some of the uh, economic development benefits that are automatically just tied to transit. Um, investments. What I would like to talk about is more about operations and how urban transit is actually operating in the U.S. because um, I'm much more concerned both as an urbanist as, as well as a transportation analyst that transit is actually struggling right now. And in, and in some ways, at a, in a period when it should be doing better, it's actually beginning to – actually, it's not beginning. It's going into a period of stagnation. And I really am concerned that unless we – achieve some major changes in the way transit, operate, transit agencies operate, um, we're likely to end up even worse off over the next couple decades. And right now, what I see, particularly in Washington, is that the discussion seems to be primarily over just pushing, putting more money into the system without any, or not, I mean, it sort of depends on what side you're on, without a real consideration of, are we actually spending the money the right way? Are our transit agencies actually operating as efficiently as they could be? And this actually came home to me oh, probably about a, almost a decade ago when I, was in, uh, when I was talking to some planners when we were talking about what could transit actually do and ta if we could just put more money in it. And the point I, I raised was that as someone who's really been studying cities and looking at how transit has worked or not worked in different cities is that even if we could put a lot more money in, into the transit operations, it wasn't clear to me that the money is being spent in an effective way so that transit ridership could actually increase or gain market share. That's more of an operations and a management issue as opposed to 
and I don't think it's an ideological one. So what um, I think if we look at this, uh, some these are just uh, some data I just sort of pulled off to frame frame the discussion a little bit. Um, obviously, we don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but you can see this is transit ridership, and from the National Transit Database. So it's not m numbers that I came up with. This is actually from the National uh, Database. And you can see that while we did experience a period where ridership began to increase, it began to stagnate. And if those of you that are interested, um, that's when the recession started. And we see that actual transit ridership not only has, has declined, it's beginning to tick up a little bit, but we're not seeing the explosive growth that we might see in headlines. The other thing that really concerns me, both as a policy analyst as well as an economist, and looking at how, how um, uh, agencies or organizations operate, is that if we look at the source of funds, um, we're finding that users, actually, let me see if I can actually get, I think this is the pointer. Users, in terms of fares, the people that are actually saying, okay, I'm willing to ride this bus or train, and this is how much money I'm willing to pay for it, they really only account for about 35% of revenues. When you look at, and that's for revenues for, that cover operating costs. We're not even talking about the capital investment. Which means that, if you think about it, a lot of agencies then really have an incentive to chase state dollars and local dollars and, and to some extent federal dollars more in capital expenditures than in operations than to really pay attention to users and thinking about how can we run our transit agency in a way that we're going to actually capture more riders. And so um, thinking about this, um, I decided that one, how could we get this conversation going and part of the answer was, well, let's talk to people that actually run the agencies themselves. So at Florida State University, um, actually, sorry, we'll just, uh, another, uh, forgot about this slide, so we'll just go through this. Um, what I find is that as an empirical matter, um, while there are some markets where transit is gaining market share in terms of over other modes, they tend to be in rapidly growing metropolitan areas with very low bases of transit ridership to begin with. Most mature transportation markets are losing market share. Um, research shows that ridership is, in fact, very sensitive to service quality and price, and we're seeing that quali service quality is actually declining in many areas, and then well, just and transit systems are faced with these chronic deficits. These are not really indicators of long-term success. These are indicators of an agency or an industry that's in crisis. So where we go, where I went from this is what can we do about this? So at Florida State, we convened a symposium um, where we really wanted to start this dialogue and try and sort of flesh out some of these questions and these issues. And we brought 30 people into a room, and this wasn't a standard group of people. Um, some, we included some critics, some of the people that have been talking for decades about how transit is, is going into this crisis and has been really questioning whether or not there's a long-term viability for transit, particularly in cities. But we didn't stop there. We also brought transit operators, CEOs and general managers. Not small transit agencies. These are large urban transit agencies. So former general manager of the Denver Transit District, for example, as well as Utah. And we also had a senior managers that were involved in finance. We wanted to bring them into the room. And then we also brought some researchers, people that have been studying this issue for a long time and been publishing academic work, not particularly well known necessarily in the policy community, but very well known in the research community. And we really wanted to try and ask this question, how can we improve transit operations? And my interest was really thinking a little bit outside the box and saying, is there a role for market-oriented approaches to thinking about improving transit operations? So the question was, can we improve transit efficiency and productivity by using more market-oriented approaches? Now note the question is not whether transit should exist. The question is, are these tools that we can use, uh, that's what frame the day, 
to use to actually make it more productive. So in fact, we can gain market share. We can attract writers. We can get out of this uh, chronic deficit cycle of where you've got, if you only have 25% of your revenues coming from writers, essentially what that means is that on their own, each writer is a net loss to the transit agency. That's usually not a recipe for success in business operations. So the question is, can we begin this dialogue? Can we begin moving it so that we can actually move people, move the discussion in a different direction? And to what extent do market-oriented approaches serve in, in that? Well, at the end, I um, can't go through the entire day. I've got some summaries of, some, of what we accomplished, much of which I'm summarizing here. But we were able to identify, and again, this was actually fairly short because at the end of the day, but a, a minimum of 28, after a lot of discussion, 28 what we thought were barriers to increase transit productivity and effectiveness, and these are just some of them. Um, some of them are kind of interesting, and many of them, even though I've been studying this issue for a long time, uh, frankly, I just wasn't quite as in tune with what some of these issues were as the people that were actually running the transit agencies were saying. Um, one of the most important, and I'll talk about this, is a lack of business model. What they mean in the context of this day is they were comparing the way transit, operate, transit agencies operate in the U.S. to European and Asian models, which run on what I call an enterprise model where there's actually a bottom line. They actually have to be concerned about how your revenues uh, match up with your spending, and there's per, there are performance criteria. Um, and as the enterprise model, it, it really tries to run it more like a business in the sense that we are providing a product, and we expect customers to pay for that product. And how is that going to run? How does that change the way we run our operations and agencies? Uh, but also other things like their lack of incentives for efficiency. The bottom line is how much grant money do you get, not whether or not you use those monies, that money efficiently for specific goals like improving access or increasing mobility. Um, sometimes it'll be grouped towards specific groups, but not necessarily riders overall. Um, there are obviously concerns about transit agency culture. Um, for those of us that have been involved or have watched management practices over the years, this is not unique to transit agencies or nonprofits, but most organizations actually don't run in an innovative mindset. Um, but to what extent does a, does a culture of always doing the same thing over and over again prevent you from changing the operating model in a way to become more productive and efficient? In a, um, we talked about value capture, the importance of thinking about how um, the benefits of transit or for transportation access, how that becomes capitalized into the value of land and to what extent can that become a revenue stream, a sustainable revenue stream for transit? And to what extent is that used or is it not used? Um, again, um, there's an optimism bias. Again, these are transit operators that are sort of recognizing that these are problems. If you have optimism bias, you create expectations that you can't fulfill. That then begins to undermine political support for transit, whether you're trying to get a tax increase or just simply trying to change the way you do business. Um, Industry lobbying, you know, industries lobby for what they have, not what they think they might have or might be able to create in the future. So all of these. When we talked about the federal government in particular, we had issues that came up such as uh, mandates. Oh, actually, a lot of discussion about federal mandates, requiring transit agencies to buy certain types of buses of certain specifications without thinking about the local context in which those buses might operate or those trains might, might operate. Davis-Bacon labor regulations, not so much the wage rates as much as the work rules in the sense that if you hire someone to be a bus driver, they have to be a bus driver, and what if you don't need as many bus drivers? Getting, reducing the number of bus drivers or moving that person to another position in the transit agency that might be more productive becomes problematic because of those rules and regulations. Um, a lot of it is collective bargaining. Um, interestingly, no one really said we shouldn't have collective bargaining. What we need to do is have the flexibility to change the, the work rules in a way that we can use our labor more productively. 
Um, Congress always gets uh, bad marks from the operators because there are usually constraints or earmarks that come with it. Um, and other things you might think, actually interesting one that came up was federal groupthink. The idea that at the federal level there's this idea about what transit should be doing and that becomes part of policy, when on the local level very often they're thinking, well, no, we need to do things something differently. We have different kinds of markets. We need to differentiate our services to meet different types of, of transit um, customers. And it's very hard to do that in the current federal um, system in which they operate, even in, all the, even in the area of dis discretionary grants. When we actually, at the end of the day, then we went through a process, I won't go into a lot of detail, about trying to prioritize how important these barriers were. This is what the conclusion came for the top ten. Um, the single most important barrier was the business model, the lack of a business model, the lack of thinking about transit and transportation as a product that will be consumed by consumers, and then operating your agency based on that idea. And the question, of course, there's a bigger question, how do you change that? A lot of it's culture, a lot of it's politics. Um, it's a long-term thing, not a short-term thing. Um, hopefully I'll be talking later this afternoon to some folks about if there's a federal role in that, which I think there is, although I'm not really sure what it is. The second most important one, though, is the absence of incentives to promote efficiency. I know it's kind of hard to read that. That's actually something that can be influenced on the federal level. If we begin moving um, some of our criteria, not only for grants, but formulas and that type of thing, to more productivity and efficiency-based criteria, that helps, but it's not all of it by any stretch of the imagination. It's also getting transit boards, that the governing institutions, to also recognize the importance of productivity and efficiency in as primary metrics for understanding how those agencies operate. And federal regulation was also pretty important, but not as important as, as the others. Um, I should importantly, uh, uh, caveat on that is that many of the first two are in fact influenced by federal policy. So when we're talking about federal regulation, those are specific regulations, Davis-Bacon, um, Americans with Disabilities Act, that type of thing. And while collectively those are problems, um, they're, uh, as individual issues, they were important, they were less important than some of these other bigger questions and issues. Um, so, uh, an example, um, we had some information from the Regional Transit District uh, in Denver where they use public-private partnerships and contracting. Um, some of the data we found is that, in fact, by the blue bars are groups of services that they contract out to the private sector in a competitive bidding environment. There are clearly lower costs associated with those services they're able to use collective um, competitive bidding for compared to the standard operations. Um, so there's some evidence that there is some benefit that we can get by expanding the use of this, again, if the competitive bidding is done in the right way and it's truly competitive. A few other ideas that um, have popped up, and I'm running out of time, um, so I'll have to abbreviate this to some extent. Um, something I've written about, actually, in the context of Washington Metro, particularly in those transit agencies where there are congested routes, thinking about using state-of-the-art technology, smart cards, other electronic pricing strategies to actually price along congested routes so you can not only ensure a higher quality of service, but you also can begin to uh, capture more revenue from the people that are using the, the transit services at those high demand times. That's actually a revenue source. It's a sustainable revenue source, which is not really on the radar screens of very many transit agencies at this point. 
um, we can expand the use of transit and taxi vouchers to serve low-income populations. Getting away from this idea that somehow we have a transit agency, that means we have to run a bus system. Well, maybe not. Maybe what we need to do is just ensure low, uh, certain groups have access to transportation and mobility. We might be able to be more effective in doing that by providing vouchers where they can use private um, either cars or buses. There are private bus companies or using taxis. Matter of fact, there are many smaller urban areas where I believe a well-functioning taxi system is actually more effective than trying to run a fixed-route bus system or something like that. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, private competition, which we've already talked about, and also a, a return to what I think should be the core focus. These are my ideas, um, which is really about recognizing that transit is about improving mobility and access more than anything else. Um, in my view, I think we get off track when our transit agencies begin to think of themselves as economic development agencies. They're not. That can be a nice and side effect, but that is not primary. That is not their primary goal. Um, I, similarly, uh, I think we get off track when we think our transit agencies are regional planning agencies. They're not. Transit is part of the transportation network and system. Yes, it has regional impacts, and it needs to be included in regional planning, but I think when we start delegating regional planning to the transit agencies, we're actually giving them something they're just poorly equipped to do. What do transit agencies do? They provide mobility. They provide access. So we need to focus on the core mission. Again, that's basic management, um, strategic management. So in terms of moving forward, I think where we've, um, to some extent, We've come to this. These are actually conclusions that came out of our symposium. Uh, actually, the first two are. All well, actually, no, all three of them are. Um, the acronym T is mine, um, just because I thought it was kind of interesting how it worked out. But basically, the consensus was move toward a more user and customer-focused transit agency, um, reground transit in a fiscal framework that allows it to be sustainable. That is clearly a long-term goal. It's not something that's going to happen in the next five 10 or maybe even 15 years in the US. We are not Hong Kong. Let's don't think we're Hong Kong. Let's recognize that we're talking about Phoenix, Arizona. We're talking about Cincinnati, Ohio. Different types of technology is going to be needed. But more importantly, particularly in this political environment, we need to focus on transparency, efficiency, and accountability. Without those two, those elements also being part of the any sort of transit reform or transit policy, where it's going to become problematic in terms of securing political support, let alone economic support for transit agencies moving forward. And so that, I am done. And I just ran over a little bit. Sorry. We always build in flexibility. Always. Always be flexible. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a, not so much a presentation as it is a work in progress. Um, we have just begun work on commuting in America 4, um, and probably be another year before it comes out. But one of the subjects that interested uh, me in, in, in how we handle the next commuting in America was this question that's popped up in a lot of the press of how the younger population has lost interest in cars. And you see it in the newspapers. Uh, um, you know, basically, it. Uh, uh, I actually made it work. Um, it's argued that uh, the younger population is much more oriented to cell phones, not interested in mobility anymore, more oriented to density. Cars are for old folks. Walking, bicycling, transit is really where it's at. And at least I think we need to give that a little bit more serious study before we uh, accept that whole argument. 
I think that, uh, as typical so often these days, people find what they want to find, and, and so every time you see a blip in the statistics, people see it as a, a revelation. And Washington, perhaps, is kind of ground central, I think, maybe with this idea. Washington, Arlington, Alexandria are among the top ten in the country in, in young people living alone. Um, and so there's a certain flavor that develops. Joe Kotkin refers to this as the graduate student resorts. That's a, it's a, just a great, great phrase. Um, the other part of this whole research effort, really, we're in trouble these days. Uh, I'm sure you bumped into this in other sectors. When you're looking at such a phenomenon that, and whatever's going on, the first question is, is to what extent is this a bubble? Is this a, a, a product of the, uh, the current pathetic state of the economy or something else? Or is this some new trend that we're all participating in? And we can't quite know how to separate those things. And very often, I guess you end up kind of saying time will tell. But I think some of the considerations that we can look at in that is, is what I'm going to uh, bring forward uh, now. We've got age and ethnicity factors to consider, income, youth, apparent unemployment, high vehicle operating costs, a whole bunch of characteristics that we need to, to look at uh, that can help to explain what's going on. One of the first points to recognize is that the share of the younger population is actually declining. That, that red arrow there is pointing at the beginning of, of driving age for the baby boomers. Uh, and you see that rather dramatic increase to about 27% of the population between 15 and 29, and on this continuing slide ever since, down to now at around 20%. Uh, we get excited about the one-person household and how, uh, how dramatic the change is, and it's really, I think, rather dramatically overstated. Uh, there are about 30 million people living in one-person households. Uh, almost uh, two-thirds of that are, are women. And uh, about 1.3 million out of that 30 million are people uh, uh, in what we might consider the younger age groups. I'm going to get in big trouble for this because I call this mostly little old ladies. And if my wife sees this, I'm dead meat. Uh, but in fact, that's the, six, the, the gray bar up there is the 65 plus uh, category. So when you talk about one of the things you have to be very careful about when people talk about single person households is are you talking about young people or are you talking about uh, older populations? In most cases, it's the older populations, and there is growth in that, in that area. Another important factor is, is what role are minorities playing? Uh, this is the percentage of black and Hispanic uh, uh, populations um, in uh, going back uh, uh, over a really extensive period of time. And what you're seeing is that, uh, that at the younger age groups, uh, the very high percentages of the population are in the black and Hispanic shares, and it begins to shift as you get into the uh, above 30, uh, 30 years of age. Uh, the reason that I mention this is very often it's, it's very heavily associated with incomes and uh, with job access. And it's something we're going to have to look at. More young people are living at home. This is a long-term trend in, in, in young people living at home by age group. And you see the, the, the recent ticks up in this, uh, in this uh, miserable decade that we've been through. Uh, and uh, and that's, uh, that's one of the factors, I think, that contributes to what's going on. Younger people have staff. Uh, most of the people who are non-drivers and young live with other drivers. Uh, 
And if you look at it by age group, 16 to 19, of course, 95% of them, but even people in the 25 to 29 year old age group are living in a household with where 80% of them have, have access to a driver in the household. Uh, and so there's a whole phenomenon going on here about access to, to vehicles. Um, one of the positive views in my mind is this overall long-term trend in black and Hispanic populations access to automobiles. This is percentage of households with, with no access to a car, zero car households. Uh, going back to 1970, the black population was almost 45% uh, without access to automobiles. It's now come down to 20%, and you see I've, I've attenuated that last uh, two bars there to show that it's kind of stabilized now in the last couple of years uh, at around 20%. Uh, the Hispanic uh, population typically in these statistics ends up somewhere between the white non-Hispanic population and the black, uh, black population. One of the factors that comes into play and that a lot of people don't recognize is the whole thing of graduated licensing. States have really gone in very strongly for, for control of young people's access to a car. They have learner stages, intermediate stages, uh, a whole set of privileges that are graduated so that they keep younger people out of their cars for longer periods of time. It's, it's proved very positive in terms of safety, in terms of uh, the effects that it's had on our, uh, our national uh, fatality rates. Overall licensing really hasn't changed that much. You wouldn't expect that even in a bad economy people give up their licenses. They might not have a car anymore, but they, they kind of hold on to the license. Uh, and you see the younger people are kind of equally constrained, young boys and girls, but as they get to the older groups, that's the 20 to 24 age groups, young women actually have more licenses than men today have, and t typically drive more than men do today have more jobs than men do today. Um, this is my work in the Consumer Expenditure Survey, and one of the things that comes out of it is that insurance costs has become a major factor, and it's not something that I react to. I uh, was really kind of surprised with the stats. There's been a really dramatic increase just in this decade in insurance costs to operate an automobile. We all talk about gasoline. We all talk about the other factors, but you see maintenance costs and you see uh, uh, the insurance costs uh, really come into play, especially if you're talking urban populations and, and under 25 populations, under 25 male populations, uh, insurance is a, is, a, is a dramatic factor. But the big, the big driver in all of this, of course, is jobs. Uh, and you see the, the two upper bars are the younger populations and their really rather dramatic declines in this decade. This is the National Household Travel Survey. Uh, and you see that the older populations, 55, 64, 65 plus, are actually seeing increases in their share of population, or their share of that group uh, at work. And in fact, those people are simply staying at work longer, uh, forced by a lot of circumstances. Uh, this is the unemployment rates that we're looking at now, roughly double uh, what they were back when we were looking at the stats in 2001. Uh, even the, in the white population, you talk about 22%. Uh, unemployment rates in uh, this uh, last month, 36% in the black population, 30% again kind of in the middle for the Hispanic populations. So to expect this, not to see some impact of that on auto use and other activities is, 
is really rather important. We'll skip this, but basically the, the Pew Center is that the, these people are massively un, underemployed. Those are, that, are, that are employed are not using the skills that they've acquired in college. If you begin to break this down and look at the, the worker trend, you see on the left side, uh, this is the black population, how uh, dramatically uh, jobs have declined in the period. Driver's licenses kind of muddled along, changed a little bit up and down. The same thing for the Hispanic population. Again, strong declines in the population. Driver's licenses trended to kind of stabilize. This is the white non-Hispanic population. Same thing. So a little more to, uh, stability in the driving license trend, declining uh, perhaps a little, somewhat more significant. When you start looking at transit shares, you get a very muddled picture. The bottom three things are the white uh, non-Hispanic population, and they ho obviously haven't noticed anything going on in the economy. So their transit shares have remained pretty much constant. But in the, uh, the uh, African-American population and the Hispanic populations, you see significant changes in, in transit utilization. Um, what really happens in terms of miles driven is whether you've got a job or not. So the upper groups are those people who have jobs, uh, male and female. The lower groups are the people who don't have jobs. All of them have, both having jobs and not, have reduced their travel. Uh, but obviously more significantly in, in, in the, uh, the groups without, without jobs. But work trips are just about the same. This is work trips per worker, and this has been stable since the 70s, except for that blip in 1995 when we messed up the survey. Uh, we, won't, we won't talk about that. Uh, but take a look at this. This is, this is the trend of all of the populations, and I haven't labeled them for you. And this is under 16, 16 to 20, 21 to 35, 36, 65, over 65. And tell me which of these belongs to which age group. I won't keep you in suspense any longer. I know you're also on pins and needles. But here you can see that actually the one that seems rather stable there is the, un is the under 16 group. That's the light blue. And it's been pretty stable since 95. The, the dark blue on the bottom there is the people over 65. and They tend not to, to travel a whole lot, and their, their percent change has been really not significantly affected. The other groups are the, uh, the younger age groups, and the, the orange bar in the middle there is the 36 to 65. That is to say, the, typically the senior uh, working age groups. So it's, it's very much a mixed picture. And I guess I just want to tell you that, uh, as we all say in the business, you know, more further research is required, right? We've got to get the chance to say that. Uh, but I, let me just toss out some concluding thoughts, interim thoughts at the moment. Yes, they, they do love their cell phones. I love mine, too. Uh, they spend lots of time on games. Yeah, they love the environment. Uh, but the economy, to me, seems to be a perfectly adequate explanation, uh, bettered by some of the other costs that I've mentioned here that are being exacted, particularly on the young population, that, that really go a long way to explain their mobility behavior. And notice I never even mentioned uh, college loans in this whole discussion. So I think I can stop there. I do want to say a thank you to the people who helped, helped me with this, uh, Susan Liss and Nancy McGuckin, uh, who uh, developed the National Household Travel Survey. Uh, and help putting these data sets together. Thanks.